Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Let Me Tell You a Story. What's up? Good evening, sir. What's up? Not much. What is up with you? Oh, my God. The Raiders signed Jimmy Garoppolo. (gasps) I have no idea who that is. Jimmy G? He's pretty handsome. If you like American buff dudes. He's aight. Not as hot as you are, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, can you do me a favor and watch your... In this episode? I don't know how to do it. I just did it. You did it. You do it on the phone, too, I noticed. It's something I had to train myself out of doing as I like host it or whatever. But it's a very natural human thing for people to be like. And um, it's like this weird like thing that we all do. Like when you're just talking naturally, like it's weird. But like I had to train myself out of doing that, you know? But you're a professional. I'm just a guy. (laughs) I'm just a I'm just a guy. Just a guy. I know I'm a professional. I understand that. I know it took training to, I don't make sounds with my mouth, but I'm just asking you to be mindful of it. I can try. Okay. But I have no guarantees that I'll remember. That's fine. I happened to be able to also, along with my excellent speaking skills, (laughs) I am also very skillful in the art of editing. Okay, so we are back with part two of the Chicago outfit. Unfortunately, this will be a three-parter. I tried, y'all. I tried really hard, but there's just too much to talk about and a lot of fun stuff to come. But with that being said, let's get into part two. You ready, baby? Mm Mm-hmm. So we left off with young Alphonse Capone having just arrived in Chicago, immediately taking a job as a bouncer at Johnny Torrio's The Four Deuces, a bar and brothel that Turio opened inside his fancy new HQ. Okay, so the main entrance was one thing, but the side entrance through the saloon led to a few more possibilities for young men looking for an experience. Walking to the back of the bar and behind a partition, the staircase connected the saloon to the upper floors where all the girls worked in the secret brothel. What's a partition, by the way? Like a curtain. That's what I thought. (laughs) And I was like, that doesn't seem like a very... Curtain or... um. Like Like a a room divider? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Got it, got it. Um, Okay, so Capone worked the door and he would bartend at the Four Deuces while Torrio ran the entire joint while also working alongside Diamond Jim in all of his criminal dealings, including but not limited to, of course, his prostitution empire. At this point, Diamond Jim was fully breaking the law in all of the ways all the rackets, and it's reported that he was earning upwards of $50,000 a month, which is about $750,000 today. A, a month. month? Yes. Well, he's got to buy all those diamonds, right? A month. That is absurd. That is like unheard of amounts of money. It's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. With all the dealings he had his hands in, he unknowingly left Torrio and Capone alone a lot of the time. And that was not good. If only he'd known that one day the U.S. Treasury official would say Torrio was, quote, the biggest gangster in America and, quote, the smartest and, I dare say, the best of all the hoodlums, best referring to talent, not morals, end quote. Look, Jim, Jimmy Diamond. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Diamond Jim. (laughs) He was just a, he was just a naive, trusting guy, you know? He was just like, like I said last time, it was like amateur. He just didn't have the gangster mentality. But I think that's a new mentality, right? It, but it was a mentality taking over. 
I feel like he just, he didn't get it. Like he was almost like. He was old school. Yeah, but he wasn't even that old. But yeah, you're right. He was old school. He was like, yeah, we're all just criminals making some money. Meanwhile, there were all these younger gangsters popping up and they're starting some real shit. And Colosimo's just in his own world, you know, like he's just like, ah, nah. And that's, that's a very bizarre thing to have happened because he built he built the underground in Chicago to yeah, be massive, but, and then he didn't really stay with the times. Yeah, but that's that's just it. He didn't even tell, what's his name, Torino or whatever. He didn't tell him to murder those guys. He was just like, scare them. And then homie went out there and like gunned them all down. Right. You know, he's just like... I'm sure he was fine with them being murdered, Yeah, too. I'm sure, but like, I just yeah, don't just think he thought like that. Yeah, he just didn't have the edge right. at all. He was probably one of those guys that's just like, oh, honor, honor among thieves. You right, know? Like, right. He was just old school. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, to Diamond Jim, he didn't think of Torrio that way either. You know, the same way, he, like you just said. Old school, he views the whole city one way, including Torrio. So he was welcoming in the 1920s with not a care in the world, right around the time that Capone was making himself at home under Torrio's wing. But there were big problems on the horizon. Well, I mean, really, there was like one big problem, and that was Prohibition. At midnight on January 17th, 1920, America went dry AF as Prohibition officially banned the manufacturing, sale, and transportation of any liquor intended for beverage purposes. And Torrio, with his slick new bar slash secret brothel, was obviously not about that dry life. Bad for business. Also, can you imagine running like restaurants and bars and then America goes dry and you're just like, uh, what? (laughs) God, what a weird time. Yeah, I'm going to talk about it. Isn't it Jesus? A lot of it is. Yeah. But there's some other there's some other reasons. So Torrio put his thinking cap on, okay? Because he's like, okay, I'm trying to run a business here, all right? And I need alcohol. And Alphonse was happy to learn from Torrio, you know? He's like the little mentee. He's just learning and soaking it all in. Alphonse had known Torrio since their days back in New York, where the two were both fully part of the gang scene, and he genuinely did look up to him. Though they were not, as far as I could gather from reports, running in the same gang back then. But I also read in I also read that Torrio actually might have been the one who hired Capone at his old saloon. So and before he left, so he might have been the one that actually hired him, and then he left to Chicago. That was reported in one in one article, but it was a reputable article. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. If Maybe when Frankie Yale called and was like, you got to help out the bartender, Cheerio was like, oh, I love that kid. Send him over. So there was already like this brotherly bond. Oh, he was like, that kid's a psycho. Get him over here. Yes, yes. And totally. He needs muscle in this town. Totally. So when Cheerio decided that he wanted to cash in on Prohibition, Alphonse was just fine to go along for the ride. Prohibition had been in the works for a long time with numerous religious groups calling for an alcohol ban years before it finally became law led by groups like the Women's Christian Temperance Union, who believed that alcohol was the destroyer of marriages and families. And then you had the Anti-Saloon League, who (laughs) were heavily driven by religious reasons also, and their view was just that alcohol was simply, quote, ungodly. They just viewed all alcohol... Jesus turned water into wine, assholes. I know, I know. But they just viewed (laughs) the whole thing as being like, this is not God's will, (laughs) okay? Now, industrial owners had also started supporting the ban because as the industry grew, their need for non-drunk workers grew to be a problem because apparently everybody was just sloshed all the time and they were tired of all the alcohol-related construction accidents. 
What a time to be alive. What? That that <laughs> genuinely made me stop typing. And then I had to like reread what I read. And I was like, alcohol-related accidents. And I was like, damn, that's actually kind of crazy. That there was such a small industry, you know, like industrial, whatever, was so small at the time that you really could just show up to work hammered. And then all of a sudden the city started booming and then they needed real construction and they had nobody to rely on because everybody was drunk. Plus, they also needed men on the job for longer hours in order to, you know, make all these building projects happen, happen, which obviously is impossible if your men are literally passing out on the clock. And the groups continued that fight for years until 1917, when in order to save grain for food during World War I, President Woodrow Wilson put a temporary wartime ban on alcohol with plans to keep the ban in place for only a few years. And that must have got the entire conversation going again, just about a permanent alcohol ban. And it was stronger now than ever before because now there was a temporary ban. So now all of these groups that had been fighting for a ban were like, this is our time to get this made into a permanent law, if Mm. that makes sense. No, that's interesting. And because the conversation was so strong, Congress decided to submit the ban as a full-on law And they were like, all right, you guys, we got to all come to an agreement here. So we'll give you seven years to come to a decision. At the time, at least three quarters of the states needed to favor a law for it to pass. So the hope was that seven years would be enough time to see where people around the country really stood. It took only 11 months for three quarters of the states to pass the ban. So they gave them seven years and it was passed in 11 months. Prohibition was ratified in January of 1919, but would not become law until the following year in 1920. But everybody knew it was coming, which was why Torrio had been getting really excited about being able to bring in some extra dough by getting into the bootlegging game. Why do you look like you're falling asleep already? I'm not. I'm just just, as soon as I start talking. When you start talking, I start (laughs) listening. That's my listening face. They're going to say, when you start talking, I get tired. Yeah, I mean, two (laughs) things can be true at the same time. Yeah. Which was why Trio had been excited about being able to bring in some extra dough by getting into the bootlegging game, which was to him the solution to prohibition for all the people who hated prohibition, illegal liquor, obviously, right? Because just because prohibition passed does not mean that everyone was like, all right, guess we're not drinking now, you know? He's going to make more money too. Absolutely. Make more money on the black market than if Mm -hmm. he was buying beer from Budweiser. 100%. When Prohibition passed, though, the government did have the hardest time enforcing it in urban areas, namely large cities like, say, Chicago. They were like, hey, stop drinking. And everyone was like, yeah, okay, we will. And they just never did. And they kept pounding their booze, obviously. (laughs) Dramatization is not accurate. (laughs) That's how it happened. (laughs) Now, in more rural areas, there really was no alcohol, which gave urban folk the ability to manufacture and transport illegal liquor, like you said, for a lot of money. Higher demand, higher price. Now, Torrio was like, great, let's get started. And he was shocked when Colosimo was like, eh, bootlegging, it's not really our thing. Let's just not. And you know, Torrio did not like Colosimo, Colosimo, <laughs> making big decisions like that on behalf of everybody. But just to shut him up a bit, Colosmo invested $25,000 to reopen a brewery for Trio that had been closed thanks to Prohibition. So when Prohibition passed, they raided all the breweries, yeah. shut them down, yeah. put padlocks on the doors. Didn't really raid them. They like, were just like, you're done. Big ye the cartoon padlocks. Yeah. They were like, <laughs> done. You're done. And everyone's like, oh, man. And they put padlocks on all the doors. But because 
because Torrio had been, you know, making a fuss, Colosmo was like, all right, fine, I'll reopen this brewery. You'll work it in secret or whatever. Did you know that bootleggers invented racing, car racing? Really? I did not know that. That's where, like, street modifications to your cars started. Really? Yeah. Because they had to outrun the police. And so they would soup their cars up. And, like, cars were shit then, right? Mm-hmm. So if they could figure out how to make their cars faster than police, the police, like, would just give up because they just know, like, well, we can never catch these people. Yeah, just a bunch of Model Ts with giant rims. I mean, I don't think they were doing the rim thing, but they were making mods to the engines <laughs> Like, and bouncing shit. Model Ts with the, what is it, the hydraulic? Dude, that's so sick. Yeah, it's cool. I know, like, there's a lot of things that stem from this era, for sure. Because I think, I think it's just a sign of the times, right? There was so much oversight on people's lives that they had to get creative with doing things that just people do, you know? I also think it's crazy that like a hundred years later, now the most popular thing in the world is a speakeasy. I know. You know? <laughs> I know. It's like a cliche to the one billionth degree. Yeah. And it's like, oh, that's we're we're doing this because it's so cool to have a hidden bar. Like top 10 secret (laughs) speakeasies in L.A. on like Thrillist. Yeah, I know. It's wild. It's actually wild. Um, Okay, so Torrio gets his money, gets the brewery reopened. And he's like, great. Okay, but like I want more. Like I want in on this game. And it was he who had convinced Colosmo to expand his brothels out of the city and into the burbs. And it it had pulled in major coins. Mm. So he was like, look, I expanded your prostitution empire. You've given me this brewery. Just let me do the same thing here. But no matter how much he tried to sway him to think as big with bootlegging as he did with, you know, prostitution, Closmo just refused to budge. According to some reports, I gathered that it might have been Colosimo's pride that kept him from wanting to get into bootlegging, running what would eventually be called the Colosimo Colosimo gang at that point. He'd gained a lot of respect, which is funny because he's literally one of the biggest criminals in the shy at this point, but it was possible that he viewed bootlegging as an amateur's game and one that could get you into real trouble. So he's like, I got all these other things going on. Why would I risk it all getting into bootlegging? He doesn't want the feds to come down him. Yeah, because this wasn't just a a local law. This was a national law. law. It's a federal law. You could get into real trouble. Prostitution is illegal or no? Yeah, but it wasn't as like People are like, oh, prostitution. It wasn't as heavily (laughs) looked over the way that... Maybe the punishments were... Mm-hmm. more severe for bootlegging, you know? And, like, prostitution had been legal illegal for a long time, whereas, like, prohibition was, like, a new law. And you know how, like, a new law passes, they're just, they go hard. Like, when they got rid of menthol in California. Do you know, like, they go so hard because they have to make that law stick. So prohibition was, like, every police officer's dream. They were arresting people left, right, and center. And because this was the real government overseeing this law, he just was like, no, it's too much risk. Too many crimes, no time to get busted for bootlegging. And that does make sense. Now, I also think that aside from all of that, Colosimo had a lot of personal things going on, like divorce. Oh, no, he divorced the other woman. Yeah, Madame Victoria Moresco. Mm. It just wasn't, you know, she wasn't doing it for him anymore. Or maybe he wanted out of his marriage because he can't get with the hot singer at your restaurant if you got an old lady at home. Yes, you can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you can't really get with them. When you got a crazy old lady like Victoria Moresco. 
I'm sure he could. I don't know. Unless Mr. he's like Victoria trying to marry Moscow a piece. Is Torrio's aunt? She is crazy by just genetics. Well, that's a. I didn't realize that. Yeah, remember he that how he brought how he brought Torrio was the fact that it was Victoria's nephew. Therefore, his nephew by marriage. Mm. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about Dale Winters. Dale Winters was born in 1891 in Ohio. When she moved to Chicago in 1915 to pursue her singing career, she dropped the S in Winters, and Dale Winter was born, which is such a subtle change, but I really do like Dale Winter I better. I like Winters better. Really? I yeah. think Dale Winter just kind of like, it's just a good sounding da- How's Dale spelled? D-A-L-E? Yeah. Like a guy's name? Yeah, like a guy's name. Yeah, that's the girl, cool. Dale Winter. Dale Winters is better. She auditioned to sing at Colosmo shortly after arriving in the city, and Colosmo was so taken by her talent that he hired her right then <laughs> and there. But she really was very good, and she quickly gained a local fan base. Now, as time passed, Colosmo found himself absolutely taken by Dale, and by 1920, he just couldn't go on any longer without making her his wife. He had it bad. So that's what I'm saying. That's why he wants to divorce. You can fuck around on your yeah. wife in yeah, 1920. Yeah, yeah. And you, if you're a gangster, especially. Like, mm-hmm. I've watched The Sopranos. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, if you want to get married, if you want to lock someone down, you got, you're going to have to do it. Yeah. What was that loud noise that just turned off? Was the it fridge. the fridge? Jeez, that fridge is loud. It's kind of crazy. This house sucks. Yeah. <laughs> Now, some reports even stated that Diamond Jim had been hit so hard by Cupid's arrow that he was considering that it might be time to scale down all of his crimes. All the crime and needs to come down. So maybe it was a combination of all of the above, but who knows? But Colosmo's boys only saw one thing. Diamond Jim was going soft. Yeah, weak. Weakness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And babe, if you know, you know. What does it mean when you go soft when you're in organized crime? You're going to get taken out. Yeah, no one can see what you're doing, but you're right. Um, Yeah, going soft is a big no-no in organized crime, obviously, and it remains a real issue with mobsters to this day. Everybody wants to be all hard when they first get involved in these uh, these types of organized crime syndicates, but that doesn't always last. And these days, mob bosses complain that their millennial should-be heirs were already too soft to take over operations. I went on a slightly little bit of a tangent because I was looking up like going soft and what the history was, but then I ended up finding all these articles from 2021 in which all of these mob bosses were complaining that they were that they couldn't hand over their families businesses to their kids because these kids are on their phones too much and not paying attention you should watch the sopranos we should you should watch the sopranos. yeah 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 now so because of that mob bosses today are getting older and older because they're so desperate to hang on to their power out of the fear that little joey down the street's too busy on his phone to be heading a freaking <laughs> crime family yeah exactly <laughs> Now, in 2021, like I said, a known associate of the Colombo Colombo family had to turn himself in because this knucklehead, his knucklehead son, posted a photo of his wanted dad lazily relaxing in a pool in Florida. He's like, his dad is wanted. Damn. And he posted a picture. It's a great picture. The guy's topless in the pool, just like, hey. And he posted it on social media. And the feds were like, all right, cool, thanks. And then because of that, they put a warrant out. They sent a bunch of people to Florida, and he ended up having to turn himself in. Can you imagine how much trouble that kid got into? 
organized crimes in that sense mm-hmm. is over. It's now it's all crypto fraud and credit card numbers and data hacking. Yeah, but it's more of like this brotherhood that remains. I don't know if that exists anymore. It does. 100%. I I know like the mob still exists, but mm-hmm. like you said, they're aging out. I just think the new generation is like yeah. Slovakian hackers. Yeah, like, forget and- about it. And also, I agree with you because, yeah, I get what you're saying now. And I totally agree because they're getting less and less violent as well. Like one crime boss was complaining that his should-be heir was sending threatening texts. And he goes, he said one of the texts said, this is the second text. There won't be a third. And he was like, after you don't respond once, you are there, like, you're there to literally torment them into getting what you want. Yeah. That's how it used to work back in the day. You fought or you killed to get what you yeah, want. Just, Nowadays, these now. kids are like, we're not killing anybody. The cartel's still pretty fucking The cartel insane. definitely... They're keeping it old school. <laughs> they're keeping it definitely old school, for sure. Another little fun little tidbit, also in 2021, Colombo crime boss Andrew Mush Russo. It's a weird nickname. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, was finally arrested at age 87 with FBI officials believing his fear of handing over power in part led to his downfall. He was 87 years old. The FBI even got him on tape admitting, quote, I can't walk away. I can't rest. So you see, going soft is a problem because it's a liability. And it was a big problem for Torrio, who was like, "Uh, we're gangsters. We bootleg. That's what we do. And meanwhile, Colosimo was like, no, <laughs> like, I just don't want to do it. On March 29th, Colosmo divorced Victoria Moresco after bribing her with $50,000. So so beautiful. He was like, if you just don't contest this shit, don't make my life harder, I'll give you 50K. She was like, all right, fine. On April 16th, barely three weeks later, he wifed up Dale Winter. But within a month of saying his I do's, Diamond Jim would be dead. Oh, man. On May 11th, 1920, Colosimo told his lady to put on something nice because he was taking her to dinner. Fancy schmancy, lakefront views, the works. Diamond Jim called home that afternoon to let Dale know that he'd be a bit late for their date because he had to make a stop at the restaurant. An appointment had come up and it was very important. Arriving at the restaurant, Colosimo entered and asked his porter, which is somewhat similar to like a maitre d', I guess, um, if anyone was waiting for him, the restaurant wasn't open for the evening yet, so it would have been pretty easy for Joe, the porter, to have seen anyone come in, but he hadn't. So Colosmo headed to his office to go over the dinner menu with his secretary and his chef. Now, moments later, Porter Joe noticed someone enter the restaurant who began immediately walking towards Jim's office as if he knew just where to go. Assuming it was the man Jim had inquired about, he thought nothing of it, and he returned to work with the other employees in the back. Useless. Yep. Just then, Colosimo came strolling out of his office, leaving his secretary and his chef behind to continue going over the menu, meeting the waiting man at the front of the restaurant. Walking and talking with the man, Colosimo stopped to peer through a window. And it was at that moment that he was shot point blank in the back of his head at the base of his brain with a 38 caliber revolver. The police would later find a gun in Colosimo's pocket, but upon investigation, it was clear that the gun had not been fired in like a long time. And based on the position of the gun, it was also clear that Colosimo didn't reach for it whatsoever, giving more credence to the idea that he was surprised from behind while he looked out the window. So he clearly felt no threat. To this day, it's unknown whether the man who met Colosimo was was the gunman or if he was just a decoy for a second assailant who had been lying in wait, like snuck in behind 
this this person and then kind of stepped off to the side, not being seen by Joe the Porter and just waited there. And then as that guy and Colosimo walked together, the other guy kind of like slipped out of the shadows and shot him. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because a lot of people were like, mm, this seems like maybe this was two people, not one. Why? Like, because Colosimo was not stupid, right? He was armed. He knew. And if he felt any sort of threat from this first guy... He might have like had his hand in his pocket already or whatever. This is obviously someone he trusted. Yeah, like Torino. Torino? Capone. Right, but I think that even those types of people. I don't know, those are his boys. Those are his boys for sure, but I just think, I think the mentality was a little bit different. There had to have been a reason why they thought he was totally taken off guard. The identity of the man or the killer, if it was in fact a different person, is still unknown to this day, though pretty much everybody, authorities included, believe that the killing could only be the result of one of two things, revenge or greed. Now, who wanted revenge on Diamond J? Well, obviously his ex-wife did, right? Madame Victoria Moresco had been dumped for a younger model. She got paid. Yeah, but she was pissed. Mm. <laughs> Or was it that his new bride, Dale Winter, never wanted him for love at all, but rather for his cold, hard cash? The authorities began looking into the possibility that one of the women had hired someone to off Colosmo. But with all that Diamond Jim had going on, of course they had to keep a close eye on his closest associates, um, Torrio and Al Capone. Torrio, who rarely cried, told officers through tons of tears, quote, Big Jim and me were like brothers. And they were like, okay, this is weird. This guy was like hard as hell, never showed any emotion, and then was like sobbing to police officers. And they were immediately like, what the hell is going on here? For their part, both Torrio and Capone had alibis, which was them telling the cops that they were somewhere else <laughs> at the time of the murder. Good. Yeah. good one. Also, Joe the Porter would have definitely recognized uh, Torrio, maybe not Capone, but probably, you know? And he did not know the man, at least the man who had met Diamond Jim mm. there. As cops continued to investigate, Torrio sprang into action, honoring his late boss with the biggest, most ridiculous funeral ever. And it's said that Torrio is the founder of extravagant funerals for murdered mob bosses, of which there were many around this time. And there would continue to be many. So he was the first one to be like, we're going all out. <clears throat> Torrio had rallied together like 5,000 people, some of whom were very important political figures, and the procession followed a hearse carrying Colosimo's body, which lie in a $7,500 silver and mahogany casket. He was laid to rest on May 14, 1920 at Oakwood Cemetery. At the home of Colosimo and Dale Winter, another player in the levee, Ike Bloom, delivered the eulogy. Quote, there wasn't a piker's hair on Big Jim's head. Whatever game he played, he shot straight. He wasn't greedy. There could be dozens of others getting theirs. The more the merrier as far, as far as he was concerned. He had what a lot of us haven't got. Class. He brought the society swells and the millionaires into the red light district. It helped everybody and a lot of places were kept alive on Colosmo's overflow. Big Jim never built a pal or turned down a good guy and he always kept his mouth shut. And that really is what it was. He just was all about the business. He wanted to grow the business and he didn't care for that mob mentality at all, clearly. It's a good eulogy. It's a great eulogy. As the funeral came to an end, Torrio was seen hopping into a waiting car that belonged to none other than our good friend, Hinky Dink Kenna. And it was then that it became clear to onlookers that Chicago had a new crime boss. 
<laughs> and that also raised the eyebrows of authorities, of course. When Porter Joe was called in to provide a description of the man he'd seen in the restaurant before Colosmo's murder, cops perked up because they knew exactly who he was describing. Shortly after the murder, police had run into a former gang member and known mob murderer at Union Station. He wasn't from Chicago, so they stopped to ask him what the hell he was doing in their city. He told them, yeah, I'm just on vacation, bros, and now I'm going home. Bye. Going back to New York? <laughs> oh, yeah. And that man was Frankie Yale. Oh, my God. Torrio's boy from New York. Yeah. Now, the police at the time thought this coincidence had to be more than just a coincidence, right? But there was absolutely nothing that they could do to keep him in the city, so they had to let him go. He was like, I've been here for a week, and now it's time for me to leave. I don't know why you're talking to me. I don't know anything about a murder. I gotta go. Bye. And it was totally random that they just happened to run into him at Union Station. I gotta go back to Yale. Finish my degree. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Now, Porter Joe is sitting there describing Yale to a T. So police called authorities in New York, and they told them to pick up Yale and hold him there because they they would be there ASAP with Joe for a face-to-face totally believing that Joe would absolutely confirm their suspicions. But once Joe came face-to-face with Yale, he froze in sheer terror and refused the ability to accurately ID Yale as the man that he'd seen. This inability of witnesses being able to pin down killers became known as Chicago amnesia. And it became a big thing that happened for years and years and years. You don't rat on the mob unless you want to get killed. So, hey, at least Joe did make a footprint on the case in some way. He has a little piece of the legacy, but it would be great if he would have actually ID'd Yale. That would have solved the murder. But also, can you blame him? He was terrified, probably. This kid's like, I'm not going to sacrifice my life. Coming face to face with this guy who's a known mob murderer and the police are probably like telling him that beforehand. And then he's like sit there looking at him and this guy's probably looking at him like in his eyes. Yeah. And, you know, he's smart. He went to Yale. (laughs) Right. Exactly. It's how he got his name. He's from the Yale family. He's a smart guy. Yeah. Um, with that, Yale thanked the great men in uniform from the shy, and he merrily strolled out of custody. Joe was probably like, okay, can I go home now? Also, can you imagine the, the ride back to Chicago? They <laughs> were probably so mm, mad at him. Probably got paid. He didn't get paid for anything. He didn't ID anybody. You don't know that. You don't know. That's true. That is very true. I didn't even think about that. With their only witness suffering from a sudden bout of Chicago amnesia, police were left with absolutely nothing. Though it is believed by many that, yes, Torrio enlisted Frankie Yale to meet Diamond Jim at the restaurant, with some reports stating that the only reason Diamond J was there at all that day, that important appointment, remember, was actually because Torrio told him that he had to be there to receive a shipment of whiskey. Yeah. This was prohibition, remember? So the alcohol, 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 (laughs) the alcohol had to be received in person. Some reports also claim that aside from Yale, there was a second man waiting, and that man was Al Capone. All rumors, but pretty safe to say that whoever did the actual offing to Rio planned the hit. And that is widely believed, and it was widely believed by authorities as well. There are a lot of people, a lot of reputable sources that made a pretty strong claim for Al Capone being the gunman. Why wouldn't he be? He's a psycho. 
Also, side note, Dale Winter was reportedly bedridden for days after Jim's death, and I'm sure finding out that she had no right to any of his assets didn't help soften the blow either. How'd because that thanks to Illinois law, the two weren't legally married. <laughs> Whoops. You needed a one-year gap between divorce and another marriage. And, and like I mentioned, only 17 days had passed from his divorce before they were married, therefore making the wedding so not legit at all and with that, she had no legal claim to anything because Diamond Jim did not have a will. But his family gave her a few thousand dollars and some diamonds, which was nice. They also gave Victoria Moresco 12K. Victoria always gets paid. Yeah, she was like, um, sorry about, <laughs> sorry about Diamond Jim. Um, I need money. And they were like, didn't he give you 50,000? And she's like, no. The first five years after Diamond Jim's violent demise saw Johnny the Fox Torrio running Chicago on a much larger scale now that he was free to bootleg his ass off. His gang, comprised of Italian immigrants, grew with Capone as his second in command. As more and more gangs came to be in the city, hopping on board with various rackets, including, whoops, including bootlegging, of course, the Fox decided it was time to make a system because there's too much work to do, ain't no time for fighting with rival gang members. A lot of these fights stemmed from territory disputes, like who's allowed to sell alcohol where. Without any system, if a rival gang claimed that you were bootlegging on their claimed, claimed in air quotes, obviously, territory, they'd just straight up kill you. So in late 1920, the Fox created a literal cartel because that's what businessmen do, you know? This is why he is regarded by so many to this day as the smartest mobster in history. Because yeah. he did a lot of business. Like, he really did turn the mob in Chicago into such an organized machine the way it was in Italy. You know, he had learned a lot from his days in New York and he brought it to Chicago and he just was so good at all of the fine tuning of like the details. Um, and he also made himself the overseer of all gang bootlegging disputes. So he was like, all right, boys, we can all work in the city. And if you get into any crap with anybody else, you come find me, I'll mediate. So four years later in 1924, when the leader of the North side gang, Dean O'Banion, found out that the Jenna brothers were selling alcohol in the Northside territory, despite the fact that they were definitely not Northside gang members, O'Banion marched his happy ass on over to Torrio because the Jenner brothers were actually Torrio's boys. And he was like, all right, you said this is how the territories work, and you said that you'd handle it. So what are you going to do about it? And Torrio was like, mm, nothing. I'm not going to get involved with this one. You can leave now. Bye. And O'Banion was Pissed. Taking matters into his own hands, O'Banion first hijacked all of the Jenner brothers' illegal beer shipments. And I think they died at some point, too, at their hands. But they didn't really go into a lot of detail in, in most of the reports I read. But then there was a random report I found that was like, as Jenna lay dying after being shot by the Norsiders, I was like, okay, so they must have gotten killed you eventually. Right. But for now, they hijacked all of the beer shipments and they'd actually been doing it for a long time. They'd been hijacking a lot of the South siders, like Torrio's gangs shipments. And so they were stealing a lot of their alcohol. 
but they took all their beer shipments and then they set their sights on getting back at Torrio. O'Banion approached Torrio with an offer for Torrio to gain control of all of O'Banion's shares in a big brewery where he'd been largely running a lot of his bootlegging ventures. He told Torrio that he could have it for $500,000 because he was going to retire to Colorado. So if Torrio didn't want it, someone else would happily take it. Yeah, so Torrio took him up on the offer and handed over the half mill to secure O'Banion's shares. Now, what O'Banion didn't tell Torrio was that he'd been tipped off about an upcoming raid of his brewery. <laughs> he wasn't retiring. He was just already on the hook. He knew he was already in trouble, and he wanted to take the fox down with him. When the raid did happen, Torrio was arrested right alongside O'Banion. And because Torrio had multiple bootlegging offenses at this point, Remember, this is like four years later. He's done a lot of crap. He's gotten into a lot of trouble. And now with this new arrest, he it was mandatory that he go to prison. And so obviously he was like, you ass. And he lost $500,000. That's a sick move. That is a sick move. <clears throat> O'Banion's going to die, though. <laughs> I mean, what do you think? <laughs> Obviously, O'Banion had a target on his back, but by this time in 1924, the peace in the city between gangs was being managed by Mike Merlo, which was who was the head of the Unione Siciliana Labor Organization. He was very well respected by all of the gang members, so when he told Torrio to cool it, Torrio reluctantly obeyed until Merlo succumbed to cancer later that year. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. And then all bets were off. In fact, Merlo's death sparked major violence all over the city and set off the bootleg wars that raged on for the rest of the 1920s. Literally, everybody was just keeping it, you know, keeping it low, keeping it cool, keeping it Merlo (laughs) for Mike Merlo because he was such a respected guy to all these Italian immigrants and all these immigrants and stuff. And they're like, fine, fine, we won't kill anybody. But once he died, it was like all of this bottled up rage came like exploding out. Why did everyone respect Frank Frankie Merlo so much? Mike Merlo. Yeah. Because he was the <laughs> he was the Sicilian labor organization's leader and he was like in the party and he was like a political figure, but he was also like a respected Italian who was like, This is not how we do it in the mob in Italy. Also <clears throat> later on, he would go on to work for Capone as a fixer. <laughs> which is funny. But at this time, when he was just like a political figure and he was, it was his job to keep the peace. There was a literal job for a mob mediator, you know, like to keep the violence off the streets. No, I get it. Just like, I think it's just, he's just like daddy Merlo, you know, <laughs> <laughs> they were like, no, oh, no, no, we don't mess with Merlo. Like we, right, Merlo that's what I'm saying. Why? invited did, to everybody's dinners, you did know, he have the backing of like, the mob. <laughs> I think he did, though, to some extent. Not maybe not the backing, but like he was just one of those figures to Italians. It's like you don't disrespect Mike Merlot, which is cool. It's what a tight job. Cool. Also, imagine just being friends with all the rival gang members. You bring them all together once a year for like a big potluck. Seems pretty stressful. I mean, not for him. Everyone listened to him. Yeah, but until they don't, you know. Can't trust those guys. Well, he never had to see that because he died before it got crazy. <laughs> yep. So with Merlo gone, Taria was like, well, there's still one man that needs to get his. 
On November 8th, 1924, three men entered O'Banion's famed flower shop. This was a very famous flower shop in Chicago. Apparently, like, celebrities went there. So they're both out of jail. At this point, yeah. They're both out of jail. They went to jail. They served their time. They were probably there for, like, days. I don't know. But (laughs) they're out. They're fine. Or who knows? Maybe Torrio ordered this from from prison. I'm not sure. Did you find out how much time either of them did on that? Torrio went to jail so many times that there was, like, Oh, this time he was in prison for two months. This time he's in prison for like two weeks. I think it was all like made up. Like, I don't even know what the system was back then. And yeah. he was paying off a lot of people in the process. He'd go to jail, pay people off, and he'd just get out. You know? It was so corrupt. <laughs> yeah, it was insane. So these three men enter O'Banion's sh- flower shop, and they're like, yeah, we're looking to buy some <laughs> We're gonna buy some, some foliage. Some <laughs> yeah, and he's like, <laughs> literally. Do you have any monstera? <laughs> yeah, looking for a couple of um monstera we, plants. We some birds of paradise. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because multiple reports were like under the pretense of seeking new flowers, and I'm like, that's hilarious. Can you imagine like three gangsters walking in? One of the gunmen. Oh, by the way, they then shot him dead, right? Mm, mm-hmm. Immediately. Mm. One of the gunmen was sus- suspected to be, yet again, Frankie Yale. Literally, he's like Torrio's personal Yeah, he's man. a hitter. He is. He's, that's why the FBI calls him, like in all the FBI reports I read, also the FBI reports on the mob are so great because the way that they talk about them is just so normalized, you know? Yeah. But they're like, yeah, mob murderer Frankie. Yeah, like to them, he's just obviously been caught up in so many different stories what where did, mob bosses got murdered. What was Frankie L's nickname? I don't know if he had one. At least I didn't see anything. I'll, I'll look it up and find out. Under new leadership, the North Side gang vowed to get to Rio and all of his henchmen oh, once man. and for all. Some North Side, South Side beef for yeah, real. Yeah, this is the This is the first iteration of the North versus the South. This is why Cubs fans hate White Sox fans. The first attempt left Capone a bit scuffed up in January of 1925, but he was more shaken up than he was hurt, which I also find kind of bizarre. Capone? Yeah, like they they ambushed him, but he wasn't hurt is what like the report said. The next attempt left Torrio fighting for his life. Now married, Torrio and his wife were ambushed right outside their front door. And according to some reports, horrifyingly, his wife watched as Northsiders attacked him, shooting him several times, like in the arm, in the groin, in his leg, before placing the gun to his temple. And then the gun jammed, which is like, I thought that only happened in movies. They shot him four times just to like really, you know, really get him in pain and then right as they hold the gun to his head, it jams. Then what? They ran. <laughs> they ran. They, they <clears throat> only had one gun, apparently. They bought one fucking I gun. I don't know. It's insane. <laughs> Torrio, though gravely injured, was given a second chance at life. And with his second chance, he got the hell out of Dodge. He was actually, for the first time ever probably, legitimately scared. Fleeing to New York to finish his recovery, he appointed Capone to lead the gang in his absence. He also then had to serve some jail time for God knows what. In New York. What? In New York. I don't know where. I I think he had to serve in Chicago. I think they extradited him back to Chicago where he had to serve the time. And it was reported that Capone waited by his bedside every day, like looking over him. He also had security out there and all this stuff. And I also read in one report that Capone was heard yelling, it was the Northsiders. It was the Northsiders. We're going to get them. Like he was pissed because Dorio literally almost died. 
Um, but yeah, he had to go to jail, which is a really shitty way to reenter society after you've just recovered. But you know, he's a criminal. Yeah. Gotta serve your time. But he was able to pay off a security guard for like serious extra security in prison. Cause like I said, he was legitimately rattled. And so he paid for like, he paid a security guard to like give him a gun and then sit outside his cell all day. <laughs> yeah, it's insane. By the time he was released in 1925, maybe he was tired. Maybe his wife was like, we are done with this shit. Who knows? Maybe he realized that the only chance of avoiding seeing another gun pointed in his face was to leave for good. So he packed his bags and paid a visit to Capone, telling him that the brothels, the breweries, and all the boys were now all his. He lost his edge, dude. He got scared. After he had built the Chicago outfit up to, in today's money, a billion-dollar money-making machine, Torrio did all of that. He left America for Italy and left his legacy in the hands of Al Capone. Spoiler alert, he is not gone for good. <laughs> but by the time he returns, Al Capone is Al Capone, like full-on Al Capone which we will get into next episode. Oh, my God. Well, I had, oh my to, God. I had to tell this story. This is bullshit. I had to tell the story because I, Al Capone really, truly deserves an entire episode. Like you said, he is an absolute psycho. Before we wrap up, a couple of other things. Um, Dale Winter would end up marrying three more times, though the, her marriage wasn't like actually legal. But, you know, it was to some extent for them. But she actually ended up, like, going on tour with, like, this famous show. She got, like, you know. I know. know Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She ended up becoming somewhat famous. She died in 1985, which just kind of makes it all seem like it's really not that long ago. All right, you guys. We'll be back for part three all about Al Capone, his rise to unprecedented levels of crime and violence, and talk about where the Chicago outfit is today. Thank you guys so much. Any last thoughts, babe? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, bye.